For nearly two centuries, the quote-unquote Western, with all of its mythologies and tropes, has proven to be an exceptionally durable genre of storytelling. That durability has also allowed it to become one of the most adaptable storytelling genres. Recognizable stock characters and storylines have been recycled and adapted through all forms of literature, great and small, and off the page and onto the screen as film and television. With the genre's durability and adaptability, it's no wonder that video game creators quickly integrated it into their storytelling as well. From early educational titles like The Oregon Trail, to hyper-violent recent franchises like Red Dead Redemption, Western video games are a thing. So let's talk about it. Welcome to Writing Westward. I'm your host, Brendan Rensink, and our guest this month is Professor Sarah Humphreys, author of Manifest Destiny 2.0, Genre Trouble in Game Worlds, published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2021 in their Post-Western Horizon series. Thanks for joining us this month. For new listeners, allow me to take a moment to explain a bit about Writing Westward and myself. Each episode features a conversation with people writing about the North American West. Historians, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, sociologists, and others. By showcasing their work, I hope to spark your curiosity to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the peoples who call it home. If a writer or topic intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation. With me playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and everything else. All tasks for which I have no training. But I am passionate about the North American West, so this difficult work is well worth the excuse to read more books and talk to interesting people. At the end of each episode, I'll include a little bit more information about me and my scholarship, and about the Red Center, our public programming and projects, and funding opportunities that you could apply for. With that, let me introduce a little bit more about today's guest, and why we're talking to them. Sarah Humphreys is an assistant teaching professor of English at the University of Victoria in British Columbia, Canada. Her research in literature and language examines Westerns, how and what they communicate about our past, and how we need to think critically about what they are teaching us in the present. In video games such as Red Dead Redemption and L.A. Noir, the two primary case studies of her book, Manifest Destiny 2.0, Humphreys reveals the complexities of Western storytelling in forms that are often brushed off as juvenile entertainment. Video game writers make decisions about what stories to tell, and what options to allow players to make in the gameplay. Manifest Destiny 2.0 should serve as a wake-up call for Western scholars and the general public alike, especially parents of children who may be playing these games. Far from innocuous or juvenile time wasters, these games are powerful storytellers, and we would be wise to more carefully consider what stories they're telling, what myths they're perpetuating, and what lessons players are perhaps unknowingly walking away with. To read or watch a historically inaccurate or problematic Western is one thing. To spend hours enacting one is quite another. Sarah Humphrey's volume helps us navigate these complex issues. Professor Sarah Humphreys, welcome to Writing Westward. Thank you so much, Brendan. It's great to be here. Your book really excites me because it brings in some new disciplines and topics and ways of thinking about the West that we haven't done on the podcast yet. Um, is there are, are there a lot of people working on video game uh, scholarship to tell us a little bit about this field. Oh, okay. Yeah. Though it's a rapidly expanding field. Um, there's quite a few or well, at least several, we'll say <laughs> uh, game studies associations, right. Of various kinds and sorts. Um, it's really been a field since video games um, began my goodness. Uh, now I'm going, I'm reaching back here. I'm going to say that uh, I, you know, in the seventies is when video games really start 
Um, but they they catch hold in the 80s, right, with the arcades and so on. And from then, people started writing about them. But I think that the scholarship as we know it, I would say at about 2008, 2009, video games become much more complex in terms of their storytelling. So, so game studies for a long time had this, um, it was called ludology versus narratology you know, and uh, the ludologists were like, the game is the forefront. We have to talk about the computational processes and we have to talk about the blah, blah, blah. The story has nothing to do with blah, blah. And then the narratologists were the opposite, right? And uh, then that's, that's just gone now because it's very obvious that uh, games have become this intense uh, storytelling uh, medium, this cultural form of cultural expression that billions engage in right and that's really and then you know in the field itself you can do lots of different areas so uh, there's several uh scholars who deal with lgbtqs uh representation in gaming like shira chess is a big name in that area um there's others that deal with independent games and show uh scholars like gentry sayers uh, deals with uh, more independent areas of gaming. And that's where you really see some innovation happening. I like to deal with what are called triple A games. And that would be like your Hollywood blockbusters if you were talking about films. So I deal with, uh, I'm very interested in how games affect the masses, mass population. So, <clears throat> um, and this kind of turn or, or transformation of games to where story and gameplay, it's it's all part of it is, is now bringing in like, like literary scholars like yourself. Oh yeah. Th that, that maybe previously weren't as integrated into this, the field of game studies. Um, yes. I think one of my missions, if I can say that, I think we all have our, our projects, right? Like our life goal, kind of like, this is what I want to, this is my trajectory. If you're lucky enough to be able to have that and land a academic job and get the funding. Right. So let's just put, let's just put that out there. Um, uh, but I, one of the things I, I don't like to stay within spheres. So I've never done that in my career. I have been quite interdisciplinary. Um, and one of the things I think is really important is that uh, English departments, English, this field of English studies <clears throat> has, okay, I hope this doesn't make your listeners angry, but I feel <laughs> has fetishized the print medium. So I was always interested in print culture, like Christine Bold, right, has done some incredible work in sort of exposing the fact that, the you know, you can't, well, you can, but it's, it's not, it's better to bring in the context of how uh, a, a novel or even a film is created um, through print culture or film culture and blend that in with your close reading of the text, right? So to stop fetishizing uh, this, the linguistic aspect of the text and start thinking about uh, more widely how the, for example, the Western works. Now, I do think actually Western scholars are much more open to this because the Western itself <clears throat> is so diffusely spread across the cultural field, right? Like, put another way. Yeah, novels, everywhere. stories, games, movies, <laughs> uh, everything, yeah. Uh, figurines, yeah. superhero. I mean, there's Easterns, there's Westerns, there's, there's uh, weird Westerns, right? The crossovers between... Uh, so it's just it's everywhere and it's also a very visual medium. So I think I think that uh, it's not surprising that video games have picked up on the Western. It's just video games have a specific uh, audience and they're actually quite hard to study. Hmm. What's your personal history with maybe not gaming broadly, <clears throat> but yeah. with kind of Western themed games? Uh, of the past. And, and eventually we'll, we'll get to kind of your two primary case studies eventually, but. Oh yeah, no worries. Um, kind of reaching back into your past. What are some of the early Western themed games that you remember? Are you asking how old I am, Brennan? No, no. Okay. No. I know I am going to age myself. I'm going <laughs> to age myself right now. So um, my, 
dad to go way back um, in the early 80s when I was a kid. There you go. I've just aged myself. Um, we had computers everywhere in the house and they were like, you know, the early Macs. And because he worked um, in how to bring computers into schools in Canada in the government. Okay. So we'll just say that was something he did. He was also the editor of a uh, major computing magazine, which is now defunct called Info Age. <clears throat> so he had asked me at the age of 14, nepotism, nepotism <laughs> alert, uh, to write um, in the mid 80s to write uh, video game reviews because I played a lot. I played Zork. And I don't know if you know that game, but it's a text based game. And anyone who's played Zork, will know, I will just tell, let everyone know that I got blown up a lot. <laughs> I remember playing some text based like dungeon crawlers. Yeah. You know, in like mid in the mid 80s. Yes. Yeah, it's like that. Zork is kind of the big one, right? It's okay. the earliest or an early one, and it was popular. And you can still find it uh, online in different uh, versions. And and so I think anyone who knows about games who's listening to this will like, oh, Zork, right? Um, so that's really where my interest began. I've always had an interest in in, uh, in computers and in uh, digital environments, uh, so called uh, online environments. And I went into English because I my career in English, where I got my degree, it's actually bifurcated. So part of my degree is in linguistics, specifically discourse and text analysis and genre, genres of communication. So and in narratology. So that's so I'm not really this. Uh, uh, what would you call it? Like traditional English studies scholar. But I got to know Victoria Lamont, who your listeners might know, who, and I had read her work and I was really interested in what she did because she really blended a lot of different theories and wasn't afraid to cross boundaries herself. And, and uh, so she became my supervisor for my doctoral work. And I was just really interested in the Western as a form of communication. Not necessarily as a literary form, which is something I think a little different. So I looked, I published an article. This all really started when I started looking at the Western in terms of material culture. So, for example, uh, Hannah Dustin as a, I wish I had a, I could show your viewers, but she was a bourbon bottle, like holding, like Hannah Dustin was a, uh, a, a captive in the 17th century, 16th, no, 17th century. Uh, someone can, someone can email me and correct me, please do. Um, <laughs> it's a long time since I did this, but I was really interested. I was like, what is she doing? Like she's a, there's a statue of her um, in Haverhill, Massachusetts, I think. And she um, she's holding scalps because she's famous for escaping from her captors and scalping them. It's really horrible story. She got 50, like 50 pounds or 25 pounds of scalp or something, which is a huge sum from one of the Mathers, right? So it's, it's a fascinating story, but I was like, and her story like informs the, obviously the Western is very much an amalgamation of, uh, of uh, romance and captivity narratives. You know, if you know the history of the Western, right? It is a, it has a long history. And so I started looking at the material culture of the Western. And one of my earlier articles was on Hannah Dustin and this weirdness of how she shows up as a, Jim Beam bourbon bottle <laughs> holding the scalps you can drink from her and I'm like what is exactly does it mean to have that the haptics or touching this bottle holding it what is the effect on the brain how does that influence behavior how does that influence perception of self and as a and personhood within a nation um, and just so you viewers are obviously I'm Canadian but we Canadians are just fascinated <laughs> by what's going on down south, right? So, um, but obviously it was sold up here too. Um, in any case, so it starts there. And then uh, my son was playing. So I had this background in computers. I had this background in material culture, right? And I had this uh, supervisor who was incredibly supportive in what I wanted to do um, and thought that this was uh, important work. So that was really important. So that's really an important part of this background. But then when I was doing my doctoral work, my son, who was like eight or nine at the time, was playing this game called Red Dead Redemption. This is oh like two, 2010. And I'm now I would play with him. 
games because I, I didn't want to like, um, and, and I know like some of you are like, my God, that's a game with swearing in it and there's killing and like, he's going to play it at his friend's place. He was, you know, I was like, I'm going to play GTA or Grand Theft Auto with you. We're going to talk about representation. We're going to talk about what's happening here. It's more supervised gameplay. Right. And even, so if that's the, my- even if the games are a little... Right. A little rough. Yeah. There was some of them, like there was some versions of GTA. I was like, that's a big no, sir. You are not playing that. <laughs> but, you know, there's some games. I mean, for example, you talked about the history of Western gaming uh, or gaming uh, games that incorporate the Western. Like there's games I would never let him play or even look at online. So like Custer's Revenge, which is a game from the early 80s where uh an indigenous woman is she pocahontas i don't know is tied to a stake and just a trigger warning for your viewers okay so custer it's digit it's a very pixelated very early game right and uh custer you come at this uh indig- indigenous woman tied up it's it's horrible i this is ter- i feel terrible saying this he rapes her again and again and she screams like it is it is awful. And so the history of Western gaming is not something to be overly proud of. Um, you know, there's lots of different there's lead and gold. A lot of them are just are shoot 'em ups. I mean, the I remember very- like a while on the NES, there was one called Wild Gunman that you used like the little zapper gun that you'd point at the TV. I haven't heard of that one. Yeah. I mean, they're just there's so yeah. many. Right. Um, but so or there are arcade of, versions too, like Outlaw, yeah. you know, in the cabinet arcades with a gun. That's right. Oh, yeah. And of course, space westerns, right? Arguably, Halo is a space western. Yeah. I mean, and arguably, I mean, so much of even sci fi film, I mean, right. the, the western tropes and genre uh, have gone far beyond the boundaries of just, you know, traditional westerns, right? Star Wars is. A spaghetti western or like you know, the mandalorian that series that came out a couple years ago it's even the music yeah. was uh they, oh, leaned, they leaned heavily into the spaghetti western vibe absolutely yeah. the iconography of the western lends itself not just to film but to to uh gaming so so just to i mean this is a long-winded way to say how did i get here well it brings in a lot of different elements but when i saw so i knew about these games beforehand um, and I had thought about writing about it, but I, and, and for example, there was a, a, a um, I can't remember the a mobile game called uh, uh, Frontier Land or something. And it was like Farmland. You remember all those games on Facebook? They're not really that popular anymore, but like you could Farmville. Plant- Farmville. That's yeah. it's Frontierville. Ah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, it was so like, there was these indigenous characters in it. They were just totally like the, they were like just bonkers, you know, I watch it. I was like, this is ridiculous. So I was going to write on that. And then I saw my son playing this Red Dead Redemption. I was like, I was like, holy moly, what is going on here? So as I started playing it, I was like, my God, this is a classic Frontier Club Western. And I'm quoting uh, Christine Bold here. Uh, where she tracks the print culture of the Virginian, which is considered sort of the, the basis for all modern Westerns, right? Yeah. The, bringing the Western out from the dime novel. And so if you could, and so to create a parallel there, someone asked me at a conference, like, where do you think we are with like game publishing as opposed to like Western publishing? Like if you were to make a, like a relationship there and I was like, oh yeah, no problem. Uh, earlier games were a lot like the dime Western, just very much about sensationalism, melodrama. Well, like you said, shoot them up. Bing, bing, bing. How many, how many can I kill? And then uh, Red Dead Redemption is a sea change. And it it is around this time where a lot of games undergo this sea change. Pushing to narrative. There's there's a real story that it's telling, right? Not just telling, but you are enacting the story. Exactly. Which is, and maybe towards the end of our chat, I want to talk about the real difference between reading a Western versus enacting it because you th- th- there's something really different there right <laughs> hugely yeah. different i mean you get a, a you definitely get some uh, uh goal-oriented behavior when you're re- we can talk about later so yeah. so how did i get here i got here uh, uh we can thank your son. yeah i can think yeah and i thank <laughs> him in the book <laughs> yeah and i guess like the one outlier uh, just yesterday i was talking with my students and i made some mention of early 
uh, oh, I was asking if they took typing, if they had to take typing classes. And I said, like, I remember as a kid, I had like a Mavis Beacon typing game that was on like a five and a quarter inch floppy disk or whatever. And and some yeah. of them were vaguely familiar. And so I was trying to gauge like how old my students are, which is <laughs> I'm getting to the age where this is not a fun exercise anymore. But they all knew Oregon Trail. And, you know, that was one of my Trail, yes. one of my really early, early games. And it really does seem like an outlier in that it it was kind of telling a narrative story, yeah. goal oriented. It wasn't just like kind of like the cowboy outlaw shoot 'em up mm-hmm. thing that so many of the other early westerns were, uh, but it also was an edu- It was very much made as an educational game, which is mm-hmm. very different than I think what a lot of the other gaming industry that we're maybe more familiar with is built around. Well, I think all games are educational, right? So, uh, and I, you know, I don't. I'm not. Jane McGonigal is uh, a person who is, she's a, she, I don't know if she still does game development, but she has a, a, a few like bestseller books, like that games. And she, you know, she won lots of grants. I think she won a MacArthur grant uh, to do this work, to talk about like how games uh, affect the mind and how they are goal oriented, which means they fire off uh, Petra Lankowski. Uh, there's a lot of work on this in psych, in the field of, of psych, uh, a lot, lots, lots. Um, where, you know, it's just, uh, for want of a better term, squirting out a lot of really good chemicals into your brain. Yeah, you, you get those hit dopamine those, hits. You when get those you... dopamine hits. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't sure if it was serotonin or dopamine, but it's dopamine. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm not either, but I just said yeah. dopamine. It's, it's feel good. Feel good chemicals yeah. are coming out when, it, and that's just how the human mind works, right? It's like when you hit those goals. And of course that's what game, you know, ludic studies will tell you. This is why games are so popular, whether it's a board game, but the difference with a video game and Ian Bogos talks about this. He's just a brilliant game critic. Although, um, he doesn't talk a lot about gender, race, and, and so on. And it's a very kind of, I, I often call this, he doesn't like to do, and he's maybe, I hope he doesn't listen to this, but maybe he will, messy analyses. It can get messy when you're talking about ethics, right? And he won't go there often, although he has, and and because he does talk about rhetoric. he's He brings rhetoric into the field of really what's computational analysis of games. He calls it procedural rhetoric, meaning you can program when you're programming a game, there's someone programming it and the choices they're making are based on their cultural background, uh, the, the knowledge they've been given, the national knowledge they have, their personhood and so on, so on. And so their class, their race, their gender, and also, but also, you know, the constraints of the field and the genre. And that's why I, in my book, it's like, it, it's a no brainer to think that for me anyways, if you're dealing with a genre like the Western, you're thinking about how to fit that program or those game rewards or those goals to the key elements that meet the genre. How many, uh, as Richard Slotkin says, how many bears killed, how many uh, racialized persons killed, uh, how much land grabbed, yeah. right? Well, you, you talk about this um, literary concept that, that you're kind of, touching on here of what you call a durable literary genre. Right. Um, and meaning, you know, a, a certain genre of of writing that has a set, some set standards of tropes and characters and storylines that are so entrenched that when you port it to film or video games or so forth, that uh, the genre is so well known and so established that you don't have to do all the exhibition. You don't have to tell all the narrative because the reader or the viewer of a movie or the player of the game already right. knows or assumes so many of these things and it can do a lot of the heavy lifting for you, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and when we talk about, you know, we talk a lot about the West being a heavily mythologized region and mm. there's a real broad kind of public I don't want to use the word understanding, like maybe misunderstanding of like what quote unquote the frontier West was, for instance, but there's a pretty broad kind of agreement on like, oh yeah, it was this and this and this, uh, even though a scholar would say it wasn't that, that, and that. Um, but so a video game developer can kind of just lean on that and it does a lot of the, the work for them in telling their story, right? That's true. And I want to come back to you because I, I think, I don't think I fully answered your question about the Oregon Trail, but it's that you, the fact that you say that, and it's interesting, 
I think that, you know, there are games that are called, um, Oh, my brain. No, this morning is not working very well. Um, well, we would call them, there's a different name for them, but they're like educational games. Okay. And they have that specific goal that they are. And we were going to talk, I talked, we talked about the goal orientation. So the, the fact is all games teach you something and all stories teach, right? I mean, and I'm not saying, oh, stories aren't didactic. That's a very colonial Western concept. Yes, they do. <laughs> They absolutely tell intentionally us intentionally or not intentionally or yeah. not. They tell us who we are, how to think, how to fantasize, how to behave. Right? The Oregon and trail was intentionally trying to teach. Inten- like it was, right. it was made. I mean, I yes. first played it um, in elementary school, right? It, instead of recess, if you, every once in a while you could get on the list and instead of going out to recess, you could get a computer pass. Yes. And instead of going out to the playground, you could go to the computer lab and play Oregon Trail. This now, is like I, 1987 or something. Right. And I haven't played it in a long time, but let's break this down a little bit because I think that the iconography in, in Oregon Trail tells a very specific story about Western expansion, tells a very specific story about hardiness, about what it takes to be, uh, you know, having that line come up, you have died. It's like, damn it. You've it's died in dysentery. Yeah. <laughs> Always dysentery. It's like, <laughs> that's always dysentery. Gross. But you have to, but but what you're doing is is learning like the brain is like, okay, if we if we do it this way and we behave this way and we think this way, then we're doing it right. And it catalogs that and it remembers it. That's what makes games so powerful, right? So even when you're playing something like Red Dead, which is quote unquote entertainment. It's teaching so much about masculinity, about performance, about, so that's what I'm trying to say. There are all kinds of different types of games. Some of them are overtly didactic. Some of them are like in the AAA games, they're all labeled entertainment. But I often think about Leslie Marmon Silco here, where she's like, the, and, and I don't want to appropriate, but I do think there's a lot of less lessons to be learned uh, from indigenous knowledge to say that what we, what we read and, and God knows there's enough parallels, um, within our, with, within, uh, our own Western knowledge systems that say, be very careful. I think about the Republic. I think about Socrates, like for God's sakes, be careful when you're doing using mediums. I mean, everyone laughs. Oh, ho, ha, ha, ha. Socrates was against writing. Ha, ha. The pharmacon. You know, it's, it's, it seems funny, but it's like, uh, is it? Because he's really talking about media and moving from one medium, which is speech to another, which is writing and what that what might fall out from that. So when you take the Western and you have it as a film and then you remix it or remediate it into a video game, which is multiple layers, which can remix many different genres, which layers media and is and can seem to replicate reality in such a way that it seems to be historical. And so that's where I'm going to answer your question about Oregon Trail is, as let's think of that. This is in the classroom. Like, here's a little piece of history. Is it though? Is it? <laughs> It is, but it's disturbing. <laughs> and this is the danger, right? Like you were saying earlier, like there's a developer, a programmer who's setting the parameters of, well, here's the decisions that the character can make in this game. Mm-hmm. And uh, intentionally or not, they're encoding into that a certain yeah. perspective. Exactly. Right? That, Often that's a white, cis male, uh, uh, heteronormative perspective. And the yeah. player, especially if it's a historically set game, thinks that like maybe they are learning about history, Yeah. but they're being led down a very narrow set of uh, yes. paths. And because it's entertainment, we don't think critically about it. But I mean, this makes reminds me of, uh, there's this meme that's been floating around history circles that reads something like, it's like a conversation. There's like a history department, like professor or recruiter or something and saying, hey, student, do you like uh, reading historical fiction? Do you like period you know, novels and pieces? Do you like um, historically themed films and TV and video games. And the prospective student's like, yes, yes, I love those. And then the recruiter says, well, would you like not to? <laughs> right? Because as we start thinking critically about mm-hmm. 
these things, we do run the risk of now we just spoil everything and we, no. can't, en- we can't enjoy it. You and know? Then, no, we don't. No, I never, um, I never subscribe to that. First of all, uh, I, and no, but I'm okay. saying that I'm saying that's oh. the risk. And if you ask my, my spouse about sometimes when we watch historical um, shows and I'm like, you know, actually, you know, I, and I try, I really do try not to do that, but it is important. And, yeah, and what I uh, appreciate about, about your work and, and I and I think this is coming out. I've seen. I don't follow a lot of g- the trade magazines and stuff with gaming mm-hmm. culture, but mm-hmm. these conversations are starting to pop up of people saying, "Hey, we need to think critically about this." But it's really important because it's being Trojan horsed in in the guise of entertainment, mm-hmm. often with very young, impressionable minds mm-hmm. who we think they're just having a fun time, but they're learning things mm-hmm. and maybe mm-hmm. not what we would yes. want them to learn. And to go back to an early question, an earlier question where you were like, uh, wait, wait, you were asking about, um, you know, I'm a look like a literary scholar or I've published in that area um, or I look like a, a, a writing, you know, I work in genre and so on. Um, but um, what I really want to do is make sure that people understand that when they are reading or playing when they're working it or whatever they're looking at that looking at it critically is is not ruining it it's actually enhancing it that you can do both it's not either or it's both and so you can say um this is tickling my toes and i'm enjoying it like no doubt i'm playing red dead and there's sections of red dead that are enormously uh enjoyable riding the horse through the plains oh my heart especially <laughs> in red dead 2 it's just it's it's fun it is damn it's, a, it's fun. immersive and it's, it's like you're almost there and you're getting those the dopamine and, and all of that right all, all that well you're you're you know when you're when you're doing the goals like uh collecting you you have to collect herbs okay and when you collect a certain number of herbs you get this uh, this and some of your it's it's like don't knock it till you've tried it. Okay. Because it actually is fun, but then there's the parts of the game, like, uh, in the first in red dead, uh, the first red dead or not. And I'm not talking about, um, uh, now I can't remember the very first red dead redemption, which is very early. Actually, it's kind of the, uh, in the pantheon of gaming, it's a classic. So, but we're talking about the first red dead redemption. Redemption, Yeah. 2008. Yeah. 2010, I think. Okay. Oh, no, no, you're right. It's 2009. Excuse me. It's 2009 or 2010. Anyway. Late 2000s. Late 2000s. Um, uh, uh, but anyway, yeah, when you're, there's a whole section where you're at, where you are slaughtering um, nameless uh, indigenous men Yeah. by the dozens. It is really uncomfortable. And uh, that is where the critical thinking sh- needs to come in. But I will say, I do think that it is, you're right. The conversation is changing. A game I just wrote about a chapter I submitted for a collection by uh, Rebecca Lush, uh, Carrie Fine and Michael Johnson that I hope gets published. Um, they're just wonderful scholars. And Sarah Spurgeon maybe uh, is in there too, I think. Um and uh, uh, is uh, Last of Us 2. The first game, The Last of Us, this is a very popular franchise. Yeah. And it's only playable on PlayStation. So it was a very console specific. It's a AAA game. It's, it's, it's got a lot of backing. Um, the Last of Us isn't, you're like wandering around like the universe and it's just, just like an, no, it's, a, a huge expansive world that, it is. am I thinking it's of the right one? No, it's but it's post-apocalyptic. The oh, world. This is, has, with, this is the one with Norm Reedus. Uh, no, no, no. That is a good one, though, and no. I want to play that. That that is a western for sure. Okay. No, this is uh, this is about uh, Joel Miller is the main character. The world falls to the Cordyceps virus. The Cordyceps virus is actually a real virus. It doesn't affect humans, but so that has a, it's kind of a neat kind of reality base, right? But he is a classic. He becomes a frontiersman over the last, he has this charge, Ellie, who's 14, and she's a kind of damsel in distress. So it's a very classic game. Yep. We, know, we last, know a lot of the story, huh? Right. Yeah. But The Last of Us 2, and it does, last of, the first one does dabble a little bit. There is a gay character in there. 
uh, who doesn't see is is not this very stereotypical idea of what someone who is gay might be. So I'm not going to leave it there. But The Last of Us Two is very uh, the only word I can use meta. It challenges you, and I don't want to like spoiler alert to your listeners if they're ever going to play Last of Us Two. There's a character switch halfway through the game. You start out the game playing as the ostensible protagonist you then switch to the antagonist who has murdered Joel Miller. And uh, gamers were like, what, what? You know, they were just, but when you're playing as Abby, who is a female masculine character in that she is incredibly buff. She is an incredible character to play. Um, And it completely, that, but what it does is create this separation between the player and the character because you don't like this character. Mm. She has done something horrible to probably, and if you're going to play Last of Us 2, you've probably played Last of Us 1 and really loved like Joel Miller. Like you just you spent hundreds of hours. Hundreds, hundreds of hours. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you you know, it takes 25 hours. It took, it, I'm playing through Last of Us 1 again and doing everything. I'm 10 hours in. So yeah, you're spending time, you know, like think about Wayne Booth. I don't know, like if you've if you've t- looked at a Boothian criticism, uh, he was a famous kind of rhetorician, but he wrote a very he wrote the rhetoric of fiction, and a lot of the terminology used in literary studies, he he came up with like um, oh, uh, uh, unreli- unreliable narration. Oh yeah, yeah, and, yeah, like stuff like that. So he's actually quite well known. Um, he brought rhetoric into literary studies, right? Um, so, but you know, in this idea of, uh, he said, when you're reading, you want to think about the company you're keeping, because the company you keep, these are your friends, and some of the literary, some of the characters you have maybe won't be your friends. Like Humphreys, Humphreys, and Lolita is a terrible, terrible. Like you're like, ew, I never want to be like that. Well, Last of Us Two takes these characters, and as as you're thinking, like, do I do I want to be like this? Do I want to play like this? How am I playing? Why why did this happen? Suddenly, the game developers, right? There were two writers, uh, Neil Druckmann and Haley, and I can't remember her last name, co-wrote this. Uh, this game that really challenges the genre. It blends in Gothic with the Western, which is classically a queer, very queer genre. Uh, the Both main characters are queered. Uh, Ellie is lesbian when you play as her. Uh, and uh, yeah, so yes, you are I right. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating that you just, and I think this may shock some viewers that you just, very casually said as these two people were writing was the verb you use writing the game, which again, I don't think we think of games that people quote unquote, write them. We like, they develop games. No, they, they, they were writing a story. Right. And Um, this is why I want to bring like England. It's really important. Everybody out there in history and English, like to me in the humanities or arts or whatever they're called in your institution out there for your listeners, I was talking about this earlier. Part of my project is to say, you are the people, we are the people who need to be teaching software engineers, narratology and close reading and ethics and the messiness of dealing with these issues. Otherwise, we're going to continue to have uh, AAA games like the last uh, Grand Theft Auto, where you could shift characters three times. And one of them is this guy called Trevor. And if your uh, listeners watch The Walking Dead, he was a character in The Walking Dead who was really odious. He worked with uh, Negan, his right-hand man. Uh, so Trevor, so, and this was absolutely the writers of Walking Dead were like, hey, do you want to play Trevor in The Walking Dead? Because he's basically, and this character's horrible. And I, there's not enough correction of him, if you know what I mean. Like, don't act like that. No, people laugh at him and Trevor, haha, let's wind him up. He does really Abs- horrific things really yeah. horrific things that you play as and it's like this is a problem yeah <laughs> um yes <laughs> uh and that's again and maybe again i kind of want to end with this but uh how playing a game is different than reading a novel or watching a mm. film right um okay it it, it and i mean i think maybe that's where we'll eventually get to but I want to get back to this idea. And, and again, we've kind of, 
we actually have talked very little about the actual text of your book, which I love because we're just having, we're just going off and it's great. Um, but I've been, I'm curious about this idea of, of again, of, of durable literary genres. Okay. So be it the Western or you, you use the kind of the frontier Western and then the, the, the detective noir right. for, for LA noir is the other game mm-hmm. that you uh, talk about uh, in a few of these chapters. Another and I'm kind of breaking game. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is very, maybe more kind of narrative driven than uh, Red Dead Redemption, uh, or at least from what I could, it, anyways. But my question being, how do these games, especially these these new ones, um, balance um, kind of reifying all of the genre tropes of the Western and strengthening them and doubling down on them versus deconstructing them? We've seen this in some new Western films that are very, I think you mm-hmm. used the word revisionist a few minutes ago, right? Mm-hmm. That are really kind of pulling up, intentionally seeming to pull apart mm-hmm. at Western tropes, right? Or even just think like the power of of the, the dog or power of dog. Um, the film that just came out with Benedict Cumberbatch, which was based on a novel, right? right? But he's um, a queer character. And, you know, when that novel came out, I think that was in the late 60s. Uh, I, I'm not as up on my Western lid as I should be, but um, that that was transgressive, and that was really yeah. deconstructing established Western literary tropes. So yeah. how do ga- how do games fit into this? Because sometimes they are simultaneously um, doubling down on these things and uh, strengthening these tropes and stereotypes, but at the same time, sometimes deconstructing them and complicating them. Yeah, well, I don't think you can. Okay, so (laughs) I think it's true of any form of cultural expression that it really depends on the audience, its it's intended audience. There's another Boothian term I was trying to think of, intended audience, right? And, but the audience that, that, then other audiences that consume it, that will read it in ways that was unintended, Right. Like like and the idea here is that the game developers, whether they know it or not, are creating this powerful form of cultural expression. It's out in the world and it's going to be interpreted in different ways and then changed. And I think about authors like Stephen Graham Jones or I think about amazing historians. Yes, I am very biased in this sense of like Howard Zinn. who are like, I'm going to read this this way, <laughs> you know, like let's turn it around. What about, uh, you know, uh, what if the, uh, the, the lion told the story rather than the hunter, right? Yeah. Okay. So, and as, you know, and then thinking about the little bit I know about the field of history, that this, that historiography is like, just like, it drives historians. Like, how do I do that? How do I represent this, like, event that actually happened, right? Like, I know that that's, uh, that, that can drive folks bonkers. Um, I think that's that's where all forms of cultural expression, it's not an, about an intention, it's how it's read. And so, but you can say that the intention, for example, of Red Dead Redemption is to be uh, quite loyal to a specific type of Western, but yes, Im- embedded within it, you could say, for example, uh, spoiler alert, although this it's an older game, so hopefully this is not a spoiler alert. John Marston dies in the end. And then his son murders J. Edgar Ross, who's like this representation of government uh, everything, like surveillance and all of the kind of... And, and it's like, at once that seems very transgressive, but it's also very much feeding into an ideology that you can't trust our institutions. See, there's the two readings, right? Mm. And of course, I'm like, I lean towards like, this is very distrustful. You know, it's like, we we will, we can rule ourselves. You know, the character of Dutch Vanderlind is, but he is also like, he it starts this, wants to start this society that is, it's really gross. Like he has all of these indigenous followers as though that's a thing. And he looks after folks and he wants to bring the government down, but Marston is supposed to kill him because he's 
being held basically hostage. His family is being held hostage by the government. He has to do this, hunt down his old gang members. It sounds really convoluted, but in the end, you can pick apart threads and say, yes, there is part of it that is transgressive against a certain idea of government, but and yet what it what when you add up the sum of its parts, what it's really supporting is a very libertarian, individualistic idea. Rugged individuals. Rugged of the individuals. West, right. Yeah. So that's the argument I make in the book. But it's not the only reading of the game because there's, first of all, I don't play multiplayer. So uh, amazing game scholars like Kashona Gray, who is actually a black game scholar who studied one of her, uh, like I've only read one of her books, but she studied uh, black presence in multiplayer games on Xbox. So I didn't do multiplayer for Red Dead, which is different. And this is, I think, this is what I mean about games being difficult to study, right? And even this is why the, but I think feel like my training in in Western history and literature, built like made this easier for me because the Western is huge. Where are you going to go with it? You can only study a pocket of it, a pocket. Yeah. Right, and that's true for gaming. Like I didn't look at um, when you're playing Red Dead Redemption one and two, you can just hunt. You don't have to play any of the storyline. Yeah, no quests, no goals. You can, yeah. You can just wander the landscape. Yeah, I've, I'm not a big gamer. Um, I never had a console growing up. I had a, we had these old, you know, PCs, and I played a lot of Civilization in in all of its iterations. That was kind of my game as a kid. So um, colonial. <laughs> yeah, I know. Just I know. I, I, I know. can't avoid it, right? S- speaking of <laughs> games that can be read and played a million different ways some in very problematic yeah. ways. I've actually, I've had friends who've used it in class and they've done entire units where they, anyways. Wonderful. Um, but, that was great. Uh, but recently, uh, my kids, we did get a game. It was, it's funny. I, I was like 40 years old and getting my first gaming console, but uh, we got we got a Switch. And one of the games we got was um, Zelda Breath of the Wild. Oh, lovely. And I won't reveal how many hours I've, spent on it or how many you can times tell me. nobody will through. know um <laughs> so so many but what's funny is my daughter was i walked in and my daughter was playing it i'm like oh what are you doing in the game you know how far have you gotten and for weeks she was just going around um catching horses just wonderful and i'm like oh no but like you got to go climb that tower over there yeah. and do this and that and she's like no i just like catch, trying to catch the horses right or or in that and in, in that kind of game um you don't have to do any of the quests. You can just wander oh. around. You could just, like you were saying, you have to gather herbs as a quest, you know, yeah, in Red Dead you Redemption. Could just do that. Uh, yep. Whereas, like, when you read a novel, so mm-hmm. let's say we're going to read a Western. Yep. I, you read it fr- front to back is kind of the only way. You may bring a different perspective to it or yep. um, a different background that makes you think about yep. it differently. Or when you watch a movie, you generally just watch it. But games are interactive and you can, you can, even if there's a, this embedded storyline, you can play and experience the game in just so many different ways. As you were saying, the game developer may have intended, have an, had an intended audience or had an intended experience. But after it's out there for a few years, people have taken it and done who knows what with it and had what, who knows what kind of experiences with yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but also, you know, game development, you do have writers and directors, right? But game development, it's a huge team, right? So you you do have people working, especially in open world games, like you got this section. And so you do create an immersive experience. And then the word immersive is very fraught, okay? So I, I for your listeners who are in gaming, there's nothing is truly immersive. What we're really talking about is haptics. So just to because I know I don't want to take up too much of your time here, or but <clears throat> the difference between, if you want to get into that now, which I think you're leading into, is in reading a novel. So I'm going to challenge the idea that you can just read one way. Okay. Okay. We're, we are taught literacy very young. We're not taught a lot of digital literacy. This is changing, not rapidly enough. Okay, to be perfectly honest, but we are trained to read in very specific ways and to value certain forms of expression in very specific ways from the time we're four years old. You could, and I think someone like James Joyce 
and Sylvia Beach. Let's not forget Sylvia Beach, who I would argue actually wrote Ulysses. But in any case, we won't get in that. Uh, but, you know, James James Joyce or someone like Sylvia Beach or some other modernist might say, why don't you just open the book? Or a dataist might say, why don't you open the book in the middle? Or why don't you open it three quarters? And you're just going to read one snippet every or every even page. You're only going to read every even page. What kind of story would you, your brain would make the story for you, right? Like somebody like Gertrude Stein, I think about tender buttons, you know, forcing the brain or forcing the reader to, to thread together ideas in new ways. So I do think that reading is very much entrenched. So as the same way, certain types of, of, uh, watching, you know, films, art, art challenges that, right? Um, so always the, the, the status quo. Games, let, but let's talk about reading games um, for just a second here, because here's the, the difference, I think. Um, the difference is, and I think reading is a full body experience. We're often trained that reading happens through the eyes and into the brain, <laughs> And there's, but we are, we are infected with Cartesian duality in Western thought, the, but gaming even more. So I do think reading is a full body experience. I think film watching, I mean, that experience of watching a film in a theater, which I haven't in like two and a half years, but versus like on your little, on a phone or something with other people is a very different experience, right? We have the gasp or whatever. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a haptic so, so haptics is about holding something, though. That's not really haptic. You have to hold something, and you are having that experience travel through your body, right? You're, you're controlling something that you, that is on a screen. And I'm sure somebody who is actually uh, much more uh, into phenomenology and haptics would be like, well, that is a hackneyed, uh, very stilted description. And I'm like, you're right. But let <laughs> me just make my point here. When you're playing a game, you're holding a controller of some kind, or if you're using a keyboard, you're actually firing different parts of the brain. And that is important, but it's also about the feeling you get when you're playing a game. And and this is where I think I do like Jane McGonigal's work because she calls it the gamer's stare, right? Where you're looking at the game and you get intensely focused. And then when you win the battle, you're like, hell yes and you're like you're you're and I for myself I have yelled at the game screen I have said oh my god no like <laughs> you know um, I'm playing this horror game like I was playing through last of us one again and there's these there's these horrible creatures called bloaters and I'm like no not a bloater I will literally stop the game and like I have to actually rest for 15 minutes before I carry on and kill this thing because I know it's going to kill me 15 times before I figure out how to kill this monster And when you talk like that, it sounds bonkers, but what's really happening is you're figuring out with your body, with your fingers, how to do this thing. You actually have no critical distance, none. (laughs) So you are just, and that I think is the difference, that's where immersion comes in. Immersion to me is the lack of distance and most games are realism based. There's a lot of independent games that are, but most AAA games are incorporate a type of realism. And we know that realism is a form of storytelling. And in history, which is why people will like say, like, like in the book, I talk about the fact that there are so many even game, like very erudite game critics who are like, this shows a slice of American history. No, it doesn't. <laughs> It does not, right? But they they think that because it is so realistic because the game processes are moment by moment. There is no distance there. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've done study. They've hooked, you know, yeah, brain brain probes. But you know, like they've yeah. hooked people's brains up to scanners as they play games yeah. and discovered that uh, areas of the brain that they didn't think would be engaged and firing off are lighting yeah. up. It, yeah. It's engaging your whole brain, your whole body, your whole body in ways that other consuming other kinds of entertainment maybe don't in the same way. That's right. So I once want to take like if I can take 60 seconds to talk about then as an as an academic, what that means then, because there is a invariably when I post something on Twitter where I'm like, I really hate playing this game, (laughs) this part of the game, it's really bothering me. And I will get DMs of folks saying, well, here's some links, just watch it. 
And there is a lot of scholarship out there, I am sorry to say, where it's just based on watching someone's, well, Twitch, uh, yeah. a Twitch channel of someone playing a game. And that is entertaining to watch them like freak out when they're killing a bloater, for example, right? Um, and I think it's okay to watch someone do a walkthrough so that you don't, because, you know, if you're going to read a game closely, I keep a game journal, but I play it and I will watch the videos after to remind me of something, but you have to get that bodily experience in there. It is really important. That's why writing about video games takes so long. You talked about hours and hours playing. Imagine stopping things. So I play through once, then I got to play again and I got to stop and take notes. Yeah. It takes, it took me six years to write that book. I played those games five times through. Yeah. Five and times. you probably could play them five more times and fi find new things and new ways to experience it and think about it. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I and I think until we figure out how to do this in a way where it's acceptable to play maybe just one chapter of a game and write about it. Uh, but some way, because it really is work intensive. I'm yeah. not saying it's harder than close reading a novel. It's longer. Yeah, that's all. But I think that, yeah, a lot of academics are going to look down their nose at this kind of work, right? And well, say, oh, playing video games, like well, most people such apologize. hard work, yeah. right? Well, you said a 40-year-old person, right, playing games for the first time. I turn that around and say, way to go. Welcome. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm just... And this makes me want to go um, get, I need to go buy some Western themed games and play around um, uh, because I'm just very excited about challenging, you know, for our podcast listeners, like we've talked on this podcast about, I don't know, we've talked about the West in a, a bunch of different ways, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I really am excited about encouraging people to give a critical read, read, uh, to, to the games they're playing or the mm -hmm. games their kids are playing, uh, be they Western or not. Right. Mm -hmm. That just happens to be kind of what we think about in this podcast is Western identity and yep. whatnot. Um, but it is such a different experience. As I said, I think it's, it's Trojan horsing in all kinds of lessons and assumptions mm -hmm. and things mm -hmm. that when you really stop and think about them, um, are sometimes much more troubling and concerning than, and we would realize, um, or, and it, it makes me think, you know, I was about to say, you know, maybe with the exception of some very, uh, kind of mild games, we'd already talked about Oregon trail, which we've acknowledged does present a very specific view. Uh, mm -hmm. and a lot of things are not represented, Yep. but it made me, makes me think about, um, the new Oregon trail that, um, Apple arcade put out. Have you played this one? I haven't yet. Yeah, no. you need to check it out because they um I will they, yeah. They got a, a, a whole bunch of um historical uh consultants and people to come in. Um, yeah. you know, academics. Uh, Margaret Huettel, University of Nebraska, she's um Ojibwe, I think. Uh, she was involved, like native uh scholars were involved, and they really intentionally tried to say, Okay, well, we have this Oregon Trail game that everyone is familiar with. Mm -hmm. uh, we now have multiple generations of people that are like this is a touchstone. Right. Mm -hmm. And they all remember this specific experience. Now, for some of us, it mm -hmm. was just loading up your wagon with only ammo and going out and just shooting things. And mm -hmm. or or I remember I had a friend who would he would just get all oxen and put nothing else in it and see because then you could travel faster and you want to see how far he could get before everyone died of dysentery or starvation. Anyways, but we all have this touchstone uh, <laughs> Oregon Trail experience. Uh, and so they then developed a game intentionally trying to insert um, a whole bunch more diversity, uh, yeah. gender, class, uh, ethnicities, race, uh, the environment, all kinds of the touchstones of what a lot of kind of our generation of scholars have been applying, you know, as social historians or doing revisionist work where we're saying, well, the story has been told in this one way. Now let's flip it upside down and see how things look differently. And it's really yes. fascinating to think about how they've done that. I only spent a little bit of time on it and um, my people all broke, got broken legs and rattlesnake bites. I didn't make it very far. Um, I need to recommit <laughs> to trying to beat the new Oregon trail, but 
uh, it and some of the press surrounding it signal that they were very intentionally trying to maybe not correct the previous version, but critically uh, develop it in a different way to tell, so a, diff- it- to tell a different story. If this is an educational-ish game, um, yeah. let's take the last 40 years of you know scholarship about the American West and you know frontier settlement and indigenous peoples and try to weave that into this game as well to make yeah. a more complicated story. I, I think I do again, I think that there's a lot of games out there that that need to be in the classroom, like Never Alone is a wonderful game. It's an independent game, but it was made in a concert with, uh, uh, I want to say Inuit elders, but I don't think that's quite right. Um, I do have it here, um, but it was uh, in it, it, when you're going through the game, you're, you're playing as a, um, the, the main character is indigenous, a girl. She's, she's uh, never alone because she's always with her ancestors are with her when she gets into. Tr- so at different points in the game, you can hear a story that will teach you how to get through a part of the game from an elder, an huh. actual elder. So it's, uh, I haven't played it in a while. Like I haven't played it about two years. It was an amazing experience to play this game and the generosity of sharing that knowledge. Um, and I will say that it made me have a different perspective on my own background in the sense of people who the lessons like I've what, what are you carrying character. with you? What am I carrying yeah, with me? Yeah. Right. Like, am I really alone? No, yeah. I always have all this knowledge in my head. Right. So I was like, so that, so that's what I mean. Like games, any cult form of cultural expression, right. It's going to teach you about yourself and your background and your people. And I think it's something that we need to value a lot more without saying games are destructive games are this games are that. I just, I would never like in the book, I say, I don't want to ban any games. I just want us to ask better questions. Yeah. And And use them strategically, right? Like what a powerful medium to teach. And to teach well, all kinds of lessons, right? Yes, and solve problems, yeah. right? Like I think about the game Fold It. Have you heard about this game? Is this the protein so, about yes. folding proteins? Yeah. Yes. They like, they, they, like these. They had this medical problem with uh, is it prions or like this protein folding <laughs> disease or disorder? Yeah. And something. Yes. They, yes. They had this and it would have taken like a hundred. Yeah. Yeah. To like cr- do all the data, and so they gamified it and cr- uh, basically crowdsourced it and. Solve the problem. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. So anyway, yeah. um, We're, we're running out of time. Um, And I could could talk for hours and hopefully we'll run into each other at a conference or something somewhere. And we can, I would love that. We can pull out our mobile phones and I don't know, play, (laughs) play (laughs) games against each other or something. But, um, and we, I mean, and honestly, uh, I I apologize, but of all the interviews we've done, I think this is the one where uh, we've specifically dug into the, specifics of the book mm-hmm. l- least um we've been it's it's all been adjacent to it but um I, I encourage listeners if you know if you if you're into gaming or not um go pick this up and think and start, think critically about it um especially if you have kids you know who are into gaming because mm. as you say you know you can sit with them and um yeah. and teach and and learn together mm-hmm. uh, but uh, i think it's an exciting way to think differently about especially about the West and Western mythology and iconography and symbolism Mm -hmm. uh, because it is such a laden field, um, just laden with so much uh, symbolism and stuff. uh, And what games do with that, I think is really, really interesting. Um, Could you tell us uh, very quickly about what you're working on next? What can we expect? Uh, The next book I, the, the, so the first book was, I really went after one game developer, a rock star in in a pretty pronounced way. I had two, both Red Dead Redemption and LA Noir. Yes. And I, you know, I created two case studies because they are huge games and just offshoots of, of, but, but represent this larger uh, field of Western gaming. The next book is about games that are breaking boundaries. So last, so Last of Us One, and then how Last of Us Two responds to that. Uh, Spec Ops: The Line, uh, a game that challenges uh, really kind of war games, but noir 
as well in many ways. Uh, and uh, a, a few other games that, that even uh, I, the pocket, like you were saying, pockets of, of Grand Theft Auto that, that maybe do challenge and deconstruct, um, but not enough. Right. So I'm thinking about there's a lot about GTA out there. So I may just like no, <laughs> but, but maybe I'll play that Oregon Trail game. Right. And say, look at this. Right. So I want to take a more positive spin and but about how how these games challenge and make weird and and create uh, spaces for critical thought as you're playing these games. So that is it's a very rough. Uh, I'm just at the beginning of it. Uh, the book proposal will be going in next month. <laughs> so, so that's how, you know, raw this is, but that, that's where I'm, I'm headed next. Uh, but still looking at genre um, and, and more specifically the Western genre. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yep. I'm, ex- I'm excited. Um, well, thank you for um, taking thank you. some time out of your morning. I know you're on sabbatical leave right now and I don't want to intrude on I know how precious leave can be. So I hope it's productive <laughs> you. and you get that book proposal in. Uh, oh, I quickly. will. <laughs> well, thanks so Thank much, you. Sarah. Oh, so great talking to you, Brendan. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. Please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through. Or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We're an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understandings about the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream, have an annual funding cycle with award, grant, and fellowship categories that nearly anyone researching or working on the region from any disciplinary approach or towards any final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D, center. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Dahl, Anderson, with an O, dot com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, and just about everything else. So you can direct any praise or critique my way. I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. Recently, my book, Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands, published by Texas A&M University Press in 2018, won the Best Historical Nonfiction Book Award from the Western Writers of America. In an anthology I co-edited with P. Jane Hafen, entitled Essays on American Indian and Mormon History, published by the University of Utah Press in 2019, won the Metcalf Best Anthology Book Prize from the John Whitmer Historical Association. Here at the Red Center, I'm also general editor and project manager of a great digital history, uh, public history project named Intermountain Histories. It's a free mobile app and website, uh, intermountainhistories.org, that curates student-researched and written micro-histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or anything else, head to bwrensink, that's R-E-N-S-I-N-K, dot org, or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind. Cheers.